With the world becoming increasingly unpredictable when it comes to your family's health, proactivity is key. The Wellness Company's Medical Emergency Kit contains eight essential medications like ivermectin, amoxicillin, and z Rest easy knowing that their chief medical team, including Dr. Peter McCullough, stand behind every kit. Visit twc.health slash Prager. Use the promo code Prager for an exclusive 10% discount. Don't take chances. Secure your family's health today with The Wellness Company. Dennis Prager here. Thanks for listening to the Daily Dennis Prager Podcast. To hear the entire three hours of my radio show, commercial-free, every single day, become a member of PragerTopia. You'll also get access to 15 years' worth of archives, as well as the daily show prep. Subscribe at PragerTopia.com. a merry little Christmas. Let your hearts be light From now on Our troubles will be out of sight When you hear Billy Joel, you know who's guest hosting. Let's give it a minute. Through the years We all will be together The voice of an angel. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Dennis Prager Show. Uh, Just one more second of Billy Joel. Never gets old. What other 24-year-old, by the way, likes Billy Joel? I haven't encountered one. Please send them my way. (laughs) 1-8-Prager-776. Give me their contact information. We can have a Billy Joel fan club. Welcome to the show, everyone. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Julie Hartman, and I'm better known as Julie from Dennis and Julie. That is my show with Dennis Prager that premieres every Monday right here on the Salem News Channel. I also host my own three times weekly show called Timeless with Julie Hartman. That's every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, or should I say Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays, also here on the Salem News Channel. It is so nice to be with you. I love guest hosting. You're probably wondering where our dear Dennis is, and we need a tracking device on this guy. (laughs) He's always traveling. He comes in sometimes to the studio and he'll say, I was in Bulgaria last week. And it's like, oh my gosh, how are you not exhausted? Well, he's not in Bulgaria today. He's actually in Phoenix, Arizona for America Fest. Those of you who don't know what America Fest is, you should know, especially if you're conservative, it is a, uh, or, uh, get-together, if you will, a massive get-together of thousands of people where we, they uh, celebrate America. And it's run by Turning Point USA, which is, of course, the organization headed by our very own here at Salem, Charlie Kirk. So Dennis will be speaking today, and he has trusted me <laughs> with the reins of his show, and it is always a great pleasure. Just a quick note, because I know that I am speaking to Many people who are big Dennis Prager fans, I'm sure many of you listen to Dennis and Julie already, but I just want to especially shout out that show because you really see another side of Dennis that you don't really get on the radio because the format of being on the radio is that you have these timed segments and you've got to go to commercial at a moment's notice. And so the long form of Dennis and Julie really facilitates a nice conversation about many different things. I mean, we talk about all of life, as those of you who listen to the show know. But 
really some personal stories and some other sides of, of Dennis come out. So I encourage all of you to, to listen to that. You can listen to it anywhere you get your podcasts. And you can also watch it uh, on the Julie Hartman YouTube channel in addition to right here on the Salem News Channel. We have a great show today. I am interviewing Brandon Weikert, who is a geopolitical analyst. We're going to be talking about the Houthis in Yemen. Actually, the cover story today of the Wall Street Journal is talking about this issue. This uh, militant group in Yemen has been firing missiles into Israel and also uh, executing drone strikes at commercial ships in the Red Sea. And so we've got we've to focus on that, know what's going on there. So I, I'm delighted to welcome Brandon Weikert later in the show. And then in the third hour of the show, I'm going to be interviewing Carol Swain, who is a prolific writer, author, and uh, intellectual. She uh, is a professor and has been in higher education for many decades. And she wrote a editorial yesterday in the Wall Street Journal where she stated that the president of my alma mater, Claudine Gay, plagiarized two pieces of her work, a 1993 book that Dr. Swain wrote, as well as a 1997 article. So I'm also equally delighted to welcome her on later in the show. So please stay tuned for that. But first, we're going to look here at a story that... (laughs) Half of the country would probably cheer on as a magnificent development, and the other half of the country, people who who think like I do, and uh, perhaps for many of you listening, you do, uh, would agree with me that it's creepy. I think this story is downright creepy. It's from the LA Times, which, by the way, has had a similarly uh, or a similar downward trajectory as the New York Times on my show Timeless. I did a uh, 45-minute episode looking at one issue of the New York Times and analyzing why it's slanted. The L.A. Times is sadly no different. But this, this story comes from the L.A. Times. And not, let me read to you the title. 18 kids sue the Environmental Protection Agency over climate. <laughs> Again, half the country is going, amazing, great. Are young people getting so involved in the state of our planet? And then the other half of the country is going, oh, God. Oh, God. Here, here is the uh, subtext or subline. Plaintiffs claim that agency allowing fossil fuel pollution violated constitutional rights. That's right. Constitutional rights here are at stake with regard to the climate crisis. So this morning, I read through this article it's pretty long. These, these uh, newspapers, in addition to being uh, quite slanted, are pretty long-winded. And I've highlighted some passages here that I'd like to read to you. By the way, citing emphatically that I am reading directly from the LA Times, lest I fall into the Claudine Gay trap of not citing sources. But I want to highlight some of these passages for you because they are sadly very indicative in a lot of different ways of the state of our country. So let's begin here. Again, quoting from the LA Times. I'm a girl who cites my sources. 18 California children are suing 
the United States Environmental Protection Agency. By the way, I'm sorry, I have to pause here for a moment because we often hear that, you know, conservatives are these horrible bigots who don't care about the climate and don't care about black people and don't care about gay people and are just all around uh, defective. Guess who founded the Environmental Protection Agency? Was it Jimmy Carter, a Democrat? Was it John F. Kennedy, a Democrat? No, folks. Guess who it was? That bigot, that horrible bigot, President Richard Nixon. Look it up. He founded the Environmental Protection Agency. So the next time someone says to you that conservatives don't care about the climate, tell them to put that one in their pipe and smoke it. <laughs> EPA, founded by Richard Nixon. Okay, I, I, will, I will stop with the digressions, but, but that one was important. I begin again, quoting from the LA Times, 18 California children are suing the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency for allegedly violating their constitutional rights by allowing pollution from burning fossil fuels to continue despite knowing the harm it poses to kids. <laughs> that first sentence is really worth uh, analyzing for the next three hours of the show. You know, I'm a, uh, those of you who listen to Timeless know that I'm a constitution junkie. I am by no means an expert, but I love reading the U.S. Constitution because I think that it is a brilliant and perhaps even divinely inspired document. You know, I could be missing something, but I don't know of any place in the U.S. Constitution which guarantees our rights against the harm of pollution. That's the central thing here. They are alleging that our constitutional rights have been violated by allowing this pollution, and specifically that the EPA is discriminating against kids, as if we aren't all harmed by pollution. You know what this reminds me of? When I was a senior in college, it was uh, the 2021 to 2022 school year, we had these weird COVID restrictions. I actually wrote a editorial in the Wall Street Journal about them called Harvard Students Are COVID Sheep. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't exactly mince my words with that one. And one of the things that I highlighted was how irrational these restrictions were because, for instance, they made us wear our masks as we were getting food in the dining hall. But then once we sat down in the dining room to eat the food, we could take our masks off. And that was perplexing to me because I thought, wait a minute, does COVID just live in the area where we get our food? Does, does COVID suddenly dissipate and evaporate <laughs> in thin air when we sit down to eat the food? It just didn't make any logical sense. And, and I, I, have a, I thought of that as I was reading this, that apparently the EPA is specifically discriminating against kids. It's like, are we not all harmed by pollution? Do kids like inhale double amounts of, of pollution as the, the regular individual? It's just odd. I continue. The, the lawsuit, this again from the LA Times, was filed Sunday in the U.S. District Court for the Central District of California by Our Children's Trust an Oregon-based nonprofit public interest law firm that has filed legal actions over climate change in multiple states. And they say here that the plaintiffs range from 8 to 17. Someone as young as 8 years old is suing the Environmental Protection Agency. 
1-8 Prager 776 will continue analyzing the story. 18 kids sue the EPA over climate. Back in a moment. There's something to be said for being at the right place at the right time. Those words couldn't resonate more than when talking about buying gold. This is Dennis Prager for AmFed, Coin, and Bullion. It is my choice for precious metals. When you're buying a house, is your preference to buy when the mortgage rates are low or high? Would you prefer to buy gold when the price is low or high? Curiously, most customers wait to buy gold and then purchase when it's a panic buy with soaring prices. Nick Grovich, AmFed's owner, had a client recently tell him, I'd rather buy gold 10 months too early versus 10 months too late. Don't wait and panic. Timing is everything. Call Nick and his team at AmFed Coin and Bullion. Nick's been in the industry over 42 years, and he's proud of providing transparency and fair pricing to build long-term relationships. If you're interested in buying or selling, call AmFed Coin and Bullion for a free coin performance review. 800-221-7694, AmericanFederal.com, AmericanFederal.com. Jack Frost nipping at your nose. Yuletide carols. Welcome back to the Dennis Prager Show. I'm Julie Hartman sitting in today as Dennis is speaking in Phoenix at AmFest, the Turning Point USA event, headed, of course, by our own here at Salem, Charlie Kirk. I'm profiling this story from the LA Times. <laughs> where 18 kids are suing the Environmental Protection Agency over climate. And I was asking in the previous segment the question, how is it, as this lawsuit is alleging, that kids are specifically discriminated against by the EPA and other organizations, government entities, allowing pollution? Because as I I observed a few moments ago, Aren't we all equally harmed by pollution? Well, let's go in here and, and, you know, give an honest assessment of what this is alleging. So I'm continuing here from the LA Times. Quote, a lot of times people talk about the failure of government to act on climate change, but that's not what this case is about, says lead attorney Julia Olson, executive director and chief legal counsel for Our Children's Trust. That is the uh, nonprofit that is suing the EPA. She continues, quote, this case is about the EPA's affirmative conduct in allowing levels of climate pollution that are causing planetary heating and the increase in wildfires and smoke pollution and heat that's harming these young people's health and safety. So as I said, the plaintiffs in this case range from ages 8 to 17. And here's what the LA Times says. These plaintiffs have lost homes in wildfires, suffered health problems from breathing polluted air, and missed weeks of education due to climate change-related school closures and been forced to ration tap water due to unprecedented droughts, according to the complaint. Okay, so let's go through these here. As controversial as this statement apparently is, there is not enough evidence that supports the supposition that these problems, wildfires, polluted air, 
apparently climate change related school closures, whatever that means, and uh, droughts, there's not enough evidence to support the fact that severe climate change is causing these issues. And by the way, I just want to make something clear. I'm not a climate change denier. I don't know any climate change deniers. In addition to this myth that conservatives are these horrible, racist, homophobic, transphobic, bigoted people, there's also this myth that conservatives deny climate change. Of course the climate is changing. I don't deny that. But I have not been presented with sufficient evidence that the climate is changing drastically enough that we need to be worried, as they say, that it is posing a threat to our existence and that it is causing a plethora of problems such as the ones mentioned that are really harming people, especially children. And, and on my show, Timeless, I've interviewed several people on the subject of climate change. Ethan Brown is one of them. He's the host of the Sweaty Penguin podcast. He takes kind of a more hard-lined approach with regard to climate change. I've also interviewed Steve Gorham, who is a great uh, climate change expert. So, you know, one of the things here that they mentioned was that these plaintiffs, ranging from age 8 to 17, have lost homes in wildfires. That is a great example of something that is trumped up to the outcome of climate change. But the story is a bit more complicated. For instance, I remember a few years ago, there were these terrible, terrible wildfires here in, in my home state of California, in, in Northern California specifically. And so many people were saying, oh my gosh, it's because of climate change and the, the planet is heating, it's causing all these wildfires. Well, actually, what they found was that a lot of our forests were not adequately cleaned. In other words, there were these trees that fell down and they were all of this wood was lying on the the earth and when a fire started then it just swept, you know, miles and miles because our state had not done a good enough job of of cleaning up the debris. And so again, that's an example of wait a minute, before we say that this is affirmatively because of climate change, let's consider some other factors here that may be relevant to the story. Look, I am so sorry that these that these kids have had to go through this. It is terrible. But again, if we're looking here at the lawsuit and it's about the fact that the EPA has not taken sufficient steps to stop the problem of climate change, which is allegedly causing and contributing to these issues that these kids have suffered, <laughs> at least to me, I don't, I don't think that's, that's an adequate argument. But you tell me. 1-8-Prager-776. 1-8-Prager-776. I'm very eager to hear your thoughts. I continue. The lawsuit alleges that the EPA's conduct violates children's Fifth Amendment right to equal protection of the law, as well as their fundamental right to life, which includes the ability to pursue happiness, longevity, and personal security. And here in the LA Times, they talk about one of the plaintiffs who is a 17-year-old girl named Genesis. And they say that Genesis has not been able to enjoy her life or focus on her schoolwork because the anxiety surrounding climate change has so adversely affected her. So they talk about the fact that she lives in Long Beach here in California. She lives in a home, quote, without air conditioning because her family can't afford it. 
She must oftentimes wait until evening to do her homework when temperatures cool down, enough for her to be able to focus. And then it says here that although, again quoting, she's tried to lessen her contribution to global warming by adopting a vegan lifestyle, Genesis is constantly worrying about how the climate crisis will affect her future instead of thinking about college, the complaint states. I feel so bad for these kids. By the way, here in this, this article, they have a picture of Julia Olson, the chief legal counsel for Our Children's Trust, and she's surrounded by about 10 kids. I'm holding it up for those of you who are watching on the Salem News Channel, and these kids are so young. I think that's the eight-year-old standing at the computer right next to Julia Olson as she's filing this complaint. I can't help but look at that photo and think that these children are being exploited. I actually believe the fact that Genesis, the 17-year-old in Long Beach, really does constantly worry about the effects of climate change and that that is preventing her from focusing on her education and applying to college and, and many of those other important things she needs to be doing to move the ball forward in her life. I really believe that that is the case because people my age and in my age group, we have constantly been fed this sludge that we have a threat to our existence because of climate change. And not just climate change, racism and homophobia and right-wing bigotry writ large. Kids should not be used as pawns for political purposes. That is creepy to me. 1-8 Prager 776 will continue more with the story in a moment. The Dennis Prager Show. This Christmas, the new film from director George Clooney arrives. It's a rags-to-riches, absolute crowd-pleaser based on the number one New York Times best-selling book, The Boys in the Boat. The inspirational true story about one of the most difficult sports in the world and the 1936 University of Washington college rowing team that competed for gold in the summer games in Berlin will inspire you. This team rowed out of need, need to eat, need to sleep, and it gave them an edge that captures the power of working together to overcome all odds while rowing for America. They don't make movies like this anymore, and it's filled with wholesome content that makes it the ideal multi-generational movie for the holidays. Joel Edgerton and Callum Turner star in this exciting and incredible story of courage, hard work, and determination showcasing America at its best. Believe in each other, believe in the impossible. The Boys in the Boat opens Christmas Day in theaters only. Get tickets now, boysintheboatmovie.com. Continuing here with this story of the 18 kids suing the Environmental Protection Agency. The lawsuit is alleging that these children have been denied their right to life by being subjected to pollution and to the effects of climate change. And they list several things that these these kids have been affected by, including wildfires, as I mentioned in the last segment. But they also talk about the anxiety that these young people face thinking about how climate change is going to affect their lives. I'll read to you one last quote here. This is from the uh, Julia Olson, who is the head of the nonprofit, Our Children's Trust, who is suing the EPA. She said, quote, we want the court to say yes 
Children deserve special protection. And yes, these young people are being discriminated against by the EPA's conduct. And the EPA is violating their right to life and is acting outside of its delegated authority and allowing all of this pollution. So let me ask you a question. If this lawsuit is alleging that children are being denied their right to life because of the effects of pollution, would it be fair to say that not only children, but adults are being denied their rights to life by many of the defund the police and abolish bail policies that we have seen here in the United States? I think there is just as much of an argument, if not a beggar, better excuse me, argument, to allege that many individuals have been denied their rights to life because of these policies. For instance, the state of Illinois abolished cash bail programs with the exception of, of a very small amount of offenders. That means that if you are arrested for a crime, you do not have to put up bail. In other words, you are just let out onto the street instead of having a financial incentive to return to your court date. Why did they do that? Apparently, they say that it is more equitable because only rich people can put up the adequate bail number in order to get themselves out of jail pending trial. I bet a lot of people are severely harmed and perhaps in many cases killed because of this no cash bail policy in the state of Illinois. And by the way, in addition to Illinois, it also exists in New York. Are those individuals denied their rights to life? I think so, but you know what? If if I were a lawyer, I would not represent plaintiffs in that case because I think that we have just muddied the waters of what constitutes constitutional rights and what doesn't. Our Constitution has a specific list of protections to which we are entitled. And now we are living in this world where you can read whatever you want into it and it cheapens the document. And down the road, we're going to be able to really read things into it that we do not want to read into it. We're already seeing that now here with this lawsuit. 1-8 Prager 776. Mr. Kringle is soon gonna jingle the bells that'll tingle all your troubles away. Everybody's waiting for the man with the bag, cause Christmas is coming again. He's got a sleigh full I gotta say, it's amazing how few Christmas songs I know. What's this one called? Everybody's waiting for the man with the bag. Everybody's waiting for the man with the bag, boy. Is that true? Oh gosh, especially today on our streets. That's a dark joke. Hi, everyone. I'm Julie Hartman, co-host of the Dennis and Julie podcast and also host of my own three times weekly show, Timeless with Julie Hartman. That took about five and a half seconds, I'd say, for Sean to understand the joke. He got it. He's given a thumbs up. Good. You know, if Sean laughs, it's a pretty good indicator (laughs) that it was not only a good joke, but a good dark joke. It's great to be with you. Welcome to the show. Those of you who are thinking, why is this woman talking to me on the Dennis Prager show? Well, let me tell you that Dennis is in Phoenix, Arizona right now, speaking to thousands of kids at the Turning Point USA event, which is 
hosted by our very own here at Salem, Charlie Kirk. It's called AmFest. I've got to go to AmFest next year. I think it's a great way to meet young people. I'm 24 years old and always looking for young people to meet who share my values because, you know, there's not a lot of us these days in our cohort uh, that that think the way that someone like Dennis Prager does. So God bless him for going to that event. God bless Charlie for pu- putting that event on. And I love guest hosting, sitting in for Dennis. You know, in the previous hour, I was profiling this story by the LA Times where 18 kids are suing the Environmental Protection Agency for their alleged negligence on addressing the issue of climate change. And this lawsuit, which is filed by this nonprofit called Our Children's Trust, is saying that the EPA is discriminating against children for not doing more to combat climate change and that they are violating these kids' constitutional rights to life. And when I say kids, I'm talking about kids as young as eight years old who are listed as plaintiffs in this case. And so I talked in the last hour about how how I think unhealthy it is that so many young people are being made to be political pawns and being made to be political creatures so early on in their lives when they shouldn't be thinking about climate change or the EPA. They should be thinking about Santa Claus and the boy who they have a crush on or girl in their elementary school. But one of the other issues that I took with this lawsuit is the fact that they so willy-nilly use terms like discrimination and phrases like X violates your constitutional rights. You know, it used to be universally understood that the term discrimination had a very specific definition And constitutional rights outlined a very specific set of protections to which all Americans were entitled. But now you can just read whatever you want into any of these words, any of these concepts, and literally file a lawsuit against a government agency making these gratuitous assertions. So it fascinates me this question, where does this come from? It's not enough for me to just analyze the fact that we're in this unfortunate state of affairs. I want to go, how did we get here? How did we go from being a very intellectually healthy country, of course, imperfect, but intellectually healthy in much of uh, the past few decades to, to now being infected by this ideology that you can just really take a term and bend it to mean whatever you want it to mean. And so as I was contemplating this question, I was preparing a segment on my show, Timeless, talking about – it was really honestly intended to be a funny segment. I was preparing a segment which profiled the names of theses that are awarded hoops prizes, which are the highest prize that you can get at Harvard for your thesis. And I was looking at these, and and as I said, the Hoops Prize is is very prestigious in in addition to just the prestige of of saying that you got the Hoops Prize. You also get a paycheck of $5,000 from Harvard University for writing such a thesis. I was preparing the segment and looking at some of the titles of these essays, and I actually saw a through line between the EPA story 
and how willy-nilly they use terms like discrimination in phrases like a violation of constitutional rights. I saw a through line between that and then these theses, theses excuse me, which are awarded at Harvard because it indicates that we no longer really have strict academic standards. You can kind of talk about whatever you want. You can read whatever you want into certain phrases or certain developments, and you will literally, at the most prestigious universities in the country, get praise for it and and adoration and even many zeros on a paycheck for such jargon. So let's go through here. And, you know, this could be as much a comedy segment as a news segment. It is so ridiculous. There's this great uh, conservative Boston radio host on the Howie Carr radio network named Grace Curley. And she has a segment called Woke or Joke. And her producer reads aloud these news stories and then people call in and they have to guess whether it's woke, like something that actually happened, or it's a joke. This could be a candidate for woke or joke, okay? (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) Should I tell the audience what Sean just said in my ear? I should. Sean said we could do theses or feces. Let's do that. Honest to God, let's do that. 1-8-Prager-776. Trying to find the actual numbers of that line. Well, if you don't know how to dial letters in your phone... I said 18Prager776. I'm looking for the numbers in addition to the letters on this sheet, which Sean gave me. 243-7776. Got it. Okay. Well, you know what? If you don't know how to dial letters into your phone, maybe we shouldn't be talking. Let's do theses or feces. Uh, Hoops Prize edition at Harvard University. I just want to say for the record, I actually have friends who won the Hoops Prize, and they did write really good essays, like very important consequential theses. So I'm not saying that all of this is bad, but what I am saying is that a lot of it is. Okay, so there is an individual from the Harvard class of 2023 who was awarded a $5,000 prize for his project entitled, ready for it? Transgender Rome. Yes, Transgender Rome. Sean, do you know anything about Transgender Rome? No, he's saying no. I don't know anything about Transgender Rome. Could be a good thesis, I don't know. Sounds fascinating, right? Transgender Rome. All right, let's look at another one. Another individual in the Harvard class of 2023 was awarded a $5,000 prize for his project entitled, oh God, you really can't make this up. And by the way, no one can accuse me of being disabled phobic reading this uh, theses or feces uh, uh, title because I, seriously, I I have a sister with severe autism, so no one can accuse me of being disabled phobic. Here's what this uh, thesis, which got $5,000, is titled. The role of juvenile shank three re-expression on autistic-like cognitive flexibility deficits in male mice. <laughs> Shall I read it again for those of you who were not smart enough to understand it upon the first try? You know, it's very intuitive, people. But I'll give you a second round at it. The role of juvenile shank three re-expression on autistic-like cognitive flexibility defects in male mice. Nice. Okay. 
Let's go to some other ones. Another $5,000 thesis prize at Harvard was awarded to an individual who wrote an essay called A History of Contaminated Milk, Environmental Toxicity, Motherhood, and Activism in the 20th Century United States. Real sound effect coming from the control room. That was Sean falling over and dropping his coffee. Yeah, History of Contaminated Milk got five Gs. All right. Oh, here's another one. Sexy girls and a fish contemplate impermanence. (laughs) Sean says, I'm in. $5,000 hoops prize at Harvard University. I'll read to you two more. Magic Mountain. Samaritan. Yes, I got that right. Samaritan Astrological Intervention in Palestinian Misfortune. You know, when you think of Palestinian misfortune, you really think about Samaritan astrological intervention. My gosh, you don't think about Hamas at all, right? And here's a final one. Peddling and performing racialized sexuality, an exploration of Asian women porn performatives narrative. 5,000 to Harvard University. We're going to analyze this in the next segment. Stay tuned. MyPillow is excited to bring you their biggest bedding sale ever, just in time for Christmas. Get the Giza Dream Bed Sheets for as low as $29.98. A set of pillowcases only $9.98. Rejuvenate your bed with a MyPillow mattress topper for as low as $99.99. They also have blankets in a variety of sizes, colors, and styles. They even have blankets for your pets. Get duvets, quilts, down comforters, body pillows, bolster pillows, and so much more. All with the biggest discounts ever. They're also extending their money-back guarantee for Christmas until March 1st, 2024, making them the perfect gifts for your friends, your family, and everyone you know. So go to MyPillow.com and use the promo code Prager or call 800-761-6302 and you'll get huge discounts on all MyPillow bedding products, including the Giza Dream bed sheets for as low as $29.98 and get all your shopping done now while quantities last. MyPillow.com, promo code Prager. Julie Hartman here as Dennis is at AmFest in Phoenix, Arizona. Actually, I got word that he is speaking right now, right now in Phoenix. So I am taking the reins of his talk show. It is so great to be with you. So I suppose this day, December 19th, 2023, of my hosting The Dennis Prager Show, we are inaugurating a segment called Theses or Feces. <laughs> Credit to Sean McConnell for coming up with that name. I just read to you some names of theses that were awarded hoops prizes, which is the highest honor that you can get as a thesis writer at Harvard University. They give a certain number of hoops prizes to seniors who wrote theses across a variety of concentrations. That's what we call them at Harvard, not uh, majors. We don't call them majors. We call them concentrations. The hoops prize is awarded to a select number of seniors, and they're given $5,000 in addition to the bragging rights to say that they won this hoops prize. And we went through uh, prizes about uh, awarded to people who wrote about contaminated milk, 
prizes awarded to people who wrote about cognitive defects in autistic male mice, people who wrote about sexy girls and fish, and even someone who wrote about Asian American women in pornography. This is Harvard University giving out these prizes. By the way, stay tuned because in the third hour of this show at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 o'clock Eastern, I'm interviewing Carol Swain, who is a prolific author and educator, and she wrote about Harvard University yesterday in her Wall Street Journal op-ed in which she stated that the president, Claudine Gay, had plagiarized her work. Now, I went to Harvard, and I, look, for all that I disparage the direction that it has taken. I really did enjoy my time there because I met a lot of really great people. So I I don't want to totally paint it with one bad brush stroke, if you will. But look, we cannot hide the fact that these universities have really gone down a bad road. I remember when I was a senior, I was contemplating writing a thesis myself. And I went to the first meeting just to, just to figure out if, if it was something that I wanted to do. I went to the first meeting of the history majors, thesis uh, people, and I walked in. We all sat down, and this was the singular moment that I decided that I didn't want to write a thesis because of what I observed in this, in this classroom. The person who was leading the session, a educator in the history department, because I was a history concentrator or major, said everyone should go around and give a one to two uh, minute, excuse me, synopsis of what they think they're going to write their theses about. So I was, I was fascinated. What are my fellow classmates thinking about writing their thesis on? And people went around and it was the same kind of stuff that I just read to you. It was like, I want to explore medieval practices of basket weaving in central Ethiopia. <laughs> it was so ridiculous. It's like, what? Medieval basket weaving practices in central Ethiopia? Like, we're Harvard history majors? Really? You're going to write on that? And then someone else was like, I want to explore the intersection of race and gender and heteronormativity among Native American descendants in Guam in the 16th century. And that is the moment, my friends, when I walked out because I thought, okay, if this is what this is about, I really don't want to write a thesis. Also, I had just been I lost my entire junior year due to the COVID lockdowns, and I didn't exactly want to spend my entire senior year locked up in my room writing a thesis about some corner of the earth and abstract art form from, you know, 500 years before my existence. I wanted to have fun, believe it or not, because I lost so much of my Harvard experience. But my point in bringing this up, in addition to just have a laugh about the absurdity, is to say that you know, we live in a time where we see that people engage in such irrational and jumbled and academic jargony thought. On my show Timeless, I analyzed this ethnic studies course that a ninth grade student sent to me where they're teaching intersectionality, that your identity is an intersection of your race and your gender and your sexual 
proclivities, excuse me, and your, your financial status. And we look at those things and we go, where does this come from? We look at the whole transgender craze where people are proselytizing to young people that they may not be their gender, that gender is a spectrum. There are 38 different genders. We hear all of these crazy calls on on campuses like Harvard that the Israeli regime is entirely responsible for the terrorist attack that they endured at the hands of Hamas. And we look at these things and we go, where do they come from? How did people come to think this way? It is so jumbled. It is so irrational. How did this become legitimized and endorsed? Well, the answer to that question, and I'm not just trying to pick on my alma mater. I know my alma mater best, which is why I'm analyzing it. But this is across higher education, Ivy League and not, is that they allow you to write essays on literally whatever you want. You can make the most gratuitous assertions. You can say the craziest stuff. And you will literally be awarded $5,000 and a prestigious award. In the next segment, I'm interviewing Brandon Weikert. We've gone from the absurd to the intellectual. We're going to be talking about the Houthi attacks on commercial ships in the Red Sea. Stay tuned. This Christmas music. The joy of this moment is often lost. Thank you, Sean, for reviving it in all of us. Hello, everyone. I'm Julie Hartman in for Dennis Prager today. It's great to be with you. I host Dennis and Julie. Excuse me, I co-host Dennis and Julie along with Dennis. And I host my own three times weekly show, Timeless with Julie Hartman, which really deals with all of life. I try to suffuse the political with the non-political because we need to know about the political. We need to have a grasp on it, a rational grasp, that is, on all that is going on. But also, I think as a nation, we've gotten too political. So I talk about all of those things. I, I encourage you to check it out. But whenever I do talk about political events, I often call on Brandon Weikert to come onto the show. I'm so grateful for his presence in our national discourse, and I'm so grateful that he's become my friend. I've learned so much from him. He has written three books, one of them about Iran. It's called The Shadow War, Iran's Quest for Supremacy. I have it here somewhere on my set. Oh, yes, right next to me. That would be fitting, wouldn't wouldn't it, for those of you watching? I'm holding it up. He is also the author of Biohacked, China's Race to Control Life, and Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower. In addition to writing those three books, Brandon is a geopolitical analyst who is a subject matter expert for the United States Department of the Air Force, if you've heard of that, and an energy analyst at the-pipeline.com. Today with Brandon, we're going to be discussing the event of the Houthi rebels in Yemen launching drone and missile strikes, not only at Israel, but at commercial vessels in the Red Sea. In fact, this is the cover story today of the Wall Street Journal, so it is an especially prescient time to talk about this. Brandon, welcome to the Dennis Prager Show. Great to see you. Well, thanks. 
Thanks for having me back, and thank you for that lovely intro. I am honored as well at our friendship, and so uh, here's to many more uh, interviews. Uh, uh, The Houthi rebel threat is not an isolated threat. Your audience should be aware that this is one of the many tentacles that the Iranians have, that they're reaching out to do damage not only to Israel and the Saudis, but more importantly to ourselves. Uh, And this is part of their, as my subtitle suggests, their quest for support supremacy in Iran. Hmm. I'm glad you said that because a lot of people listening may say, okay, Julie, you know, you and Brandon are foreign policy nerds, but like, what do the Houthis in Yemen have to really do with our, you know, international state today? But as you said, they're one of the tentacles, not just of the Iranian regime, but as I would venture to say, and I think you would agree with me of the Chinese Communist Party, because, the the CCP headed by Xi Jinping is uh, really all powerful, unfortunately, and is uh, pulling a lot of strings here in our in our uh, uh, international state. So let's let's dive in here specifically with this Houthi threat. The Houthis are a rebel group in Yemen, as I understand. Are they mm-hmm. Sunni? Are they Shia? How did this conflict emerge? Just give us a history on how this came to be. Well, they are they are Shiite uh, Muslim, and they are aligned closely with Iran because of that shared religious interpretation, um, and that actually puts them at odds not only with the dominant group in Yemen, but also with the Saudis right next door. Uh, it's actually this is what we're experiencing uh, with the Houthis is basically an extension, a long running failure that was started under the Obama administration. Former President Obama in 2009, I remember, was hailing his Yemen policy as a success. But actually, all he did was set the stage for a horrible civil war that allowed for Iran to move in and empower the Houthis, forcing the Saudis to then come in and empower the Sunni groups on the ground, in some cases, Al-Qaeda. And now you've got this proxy war that's been raging in Yemen for almost a decade, the worst humanitarian crisis outside of Syria is in Yemen. Um, And uh, Iran is the instigator of this. And so now they're using the Houthis. They've trained them up. They've had them battle the Saudis and learn how to fight, you know, a larger enemy. Uh, And now they're using the Houthis as proxies to fight both Israel and the United States. And they're targeting our shipping, which they believe the Americans under Biden will not do anything to protect. And thus far, that assumption has sadly been proven right. Hmm. We talk about this a lot when you come on to Timeless, how different the world would be had the 1979 revolution in Iran not happened. Isn't it amazing to contemplate that Iran just a few decades ago, was not only pro-American, but pro-Israel. And now it is transformed into this vehemently anti-Israel country, which is such an expert of evil as to stretch its tentacles, as you say, all across the Middle East and empower even a a rebel group here in Yemen to carry out these drone strikes um, and missile strikes in the Red Sea. We only have a few seconds more in this segment, so we're going to have to pick it up in the next segment. But I want to understand, you can speak to this a little bit, what exactly is going on in the Red Sea and how this matters, how this fits in to United States and Israeli interests. 
Well, basically, this allows for Iran to to continue to destabilize the region, weakens America, weakens Israel, empowers themselves, and allows for them to move in with the Chinese and the Russians backing their play, which is the ultimate goal, to knock out the Americans as the dominant power in the Middle East. We'll continue with that in the next segment with Brandon Weikert. Back in a moment. Julie Hartman here, guest hosting for Dennis Prager. I am delighted to be joined by Brandon Weikert, who is a geopolitical analyst and subject matter expert for the United States Department of the Air Force. He's also an energy analyst at the-pipeline.com and has written three extraordinary books, all of which I have read. One about Iran's quest for supremacy, the other one about China's race to control life, and a third one about how America remains a superpower. We are talking about the threat that the Houthi rebels in Yemen pose to American and Israeli interests by their missile and drone strikes on commercial vessels in the Red Sea. Please continue with that, Brandon. I was asking, what is going on and why does this matter for us? We had to cut it off in the last segment, but please go on. Of course, um, and, and thanks for that intro again. Um, the the threat is that Iran is using these cutouts, these terrorist proxies, to basically stretch and strain America and its allies in the region, hoping that we won't respond directly to Iran. So basically, if Hamas doesn't attack against Israel, Iran has plausible deniability in their book, Hezbollah the same thing, and now we're seeing the Houthis. The Iranians are hoping that they will be able to score some hits on us and our allies without us hitting back to hard thus far. The one thing that the Houthis are doing that makes them an especially serious threat is that they are trying to force global shipping to sort of rearrange how it operates. So now you see major shipping companies can't get insurance to cross through this part of the world anymore. So they're having to transition to other choke points that are farther away. And over time, that will spike the price of goods everywhere for everyone adding to our economic woes. This is intentional. This is part of the Iranian strategy to hurt America and the world economically until our behavior in the region changes. So we try to shape their behavior with sanctions and economic pressure. Iran's doing the same thing, only they're doing it differently. They're doing it through these terrorist organizations. So that's why I think that what we should be doing is, first of all, not waiting for a coalition of, of, of navies to come together, which is what Biden is doing, it should be the world's number one uh, superpower. The United States should have the ability to send some ships right off the coast of Yemen and blitz the bejesus out of Yemen uh, until the Houthi rebels are either destroyed or they cease their attacks. And if it doesn't stop, we should also be willing to escalate directly against Iran because the Iranians think they're impervious and we need to teach them that they are not. The Wall Street Journal wrote, uh, their their editorial group wrote a piece yesterday analyzing this, and I'd like to read a quote from that. They said, quote, the expanding Houthi threat like the Hamas massacre and Russia's invasion of Ukraine is another example of the disorder that spreads when United States deterrence fails. You are right yes. that we have an emboldened Iran, which basically thinks that it can do whatever it wants to do. How did we get into this situation in the first place? When exactly did U.S. deterrence fail and how so? 
Well, it was starting to fail after 20 years of sort of mindless, endless war in the Middle East. Um, but even even then, we were still the Trump administration was able to restore deterrence temporarily uh, with the Abraham Accords, plus the maximum pressure campaign on Iran. Basically, we we united with the Israelis, with the Sunni Arabs led by Saudi Arabia to form a containment of Iran. And we basically laid down red lines and said, Iran, if you cross it. We're going to do things to you militarily, like we took out Qasim Soleimani, who was the head of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps. That sent a clear message in Iran back down until Joe Biden became president. Joe Biden reversed all of the policies of Trump, including his successful Middle East policies, and he began to try to go back to the Obama-era policy of appeasement with Iran. And it's a very similar to Neville Chamberlain's appeasement of Hitler. You cannot appease a regime that is both Islamic and fascist. The last time I was on your show, we talked about Islamo-fascism. That's exactly what we're dealing with, and you cannot appease fascists or Islamists, because the fascist thinks in the supremacy of their state and the Islamist thinks in the supremacy of their chosen faith, the his Islam, in this case, Shia Islam. And so you're not going to negotiate with people like that. They're going to use you and they're going to wait till you're weak to kill you or convert you. And that's what you're dealing with in Iran. And that's why we should not be dealing with them and trying to make them a normal country again. That regime is the problem. It must be contained. If you were president right now, Given our history or lack thereof of deterrence, what would you do to combat this threat of Iran and China and protect Israel? Well, the first thing I would do is go full bore back to the Abraham Accords. You tell the Saudis, you tell the Israelis, you got to get together. We, we will back your play 100%. We'll give you all the resources, all the money you need, all the intelligence you need, because what we basically need to do is what we did to the Soviet Union. We need to create a regional alliance in the Middle East, and we need to contain Iran until that regime withers and dies on its own, which it will, just like the Soviet Union did, because we were applying pressure on the outside and eventually the people were tired of, of that regime the same thing can happen in iran but it requires unity with our allies consistent leadership from america and a containment policy that also by the way would stymie china because if we bring saudi arabia and israel together under our umbrella they will be less likely to seek to do independent deals with china and if china can only go to iran and iran is permanently contained then that's a dead end for chinese power in the region, we've just won the day. And if we have to blow up the Houthis in order to do that, if we have to hit Hezbollah, if we have to hit Hamas in the process or support those who want to do that in the region, we should do that. In the next segment, we'll pick up more with this, but I I want to talk about how China fits into this. You've been referencing it. I've been referencing it. As you know, Brandon, I wrote an article in the Epic Times and also in the American Mind saying that I think that it's very likely that China, at the very least, knew about the Hamas uh, terrorist attack on Israel on October 7th and probably helped to make it happen. So we're going to more clearly establish again in our remaining time in the next segment how China fits into this. But my gosh, <laughs> if there's one thing at the very least we can glean from this conversation is that the forces of evil in the world far outnumber the forces of good. And we, the United States, as a force of good, are not being vociferous enough in standing up to that evil. Back in a moment. 
When it comes to your family's health, proactivity is key. With the world becoming increasingly unpredictable, you can't afford to take chances when it comes to your health. Introducing the Wellness Company's Medical Emergency Kit, the gold standard solution for your peace of mind. Inside, you'll find eight critical medications like ivermectin, amoxicillin, z and more, accompanied by a comprehensive and easy-to-follow guidebook empowering you to take back control of your health. From tick bites to COVID to extreme bioterror events, you're covered at any time. The Wellness Company's chief medical board is made up of none other than Dr. Drew Pinsky, Dr. Peter McCullough, Dr. Harvey Risch, and more truth-telling doctors who are committed to building a parallel healthcare system. This medical emergency kit will be your lifeline. Visit twc.health slash Prager. Use the promo code Prager for an exclusive 10% discount. Secure your family's health today with the Wellness Company's medical emergency kit. Dennis Prager. I'm chatting with Brandon Weikert, a geopolitical analyst who is explaining the threat that the Houthis in Yemen pose to American interests and Israeli interests. They have been carrying out missile and drone strikes on commercial ships in the Red Sea, which is intended to wreak economic havoc all across the Western world. And they're also firing missiles into Israel. And Brandon very eloquently explained how Iran is pulling the strings behind all of this. They are uh, pushing their tentacles, if you will, into all of these different areas in the Middle East. They're funding Hezbollah, the threat uh, to Israel coming from Lebanon. They're funding Hamas. And here they are funding the Houthis in Yemen, which are carrying out these attacks against Israel. But as I've discussed with Brandon and as we've hinted at in this interview, there's another greater power, which is helping Iran pull the strings, and even perhaps pulling the strings of Iran, who is pulling the strings. And that is China. Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party have really launched a kind of international effort to exert influence all around the world. Brandon, how does China fit into this Houthi threat in the Red Sea and to Israel? Well, generally speaking, the hidden hand of China can be seen in all of these crises, whether it's Russia, Ukraine, the current crisis in the Middle East, the possibility that Venezuela might invade Guyana, uh, or even the North Korean recent testing of his intercontinental ballistic missiles. All of this is the hidden hand of China. They have been for several years now working to build an anti-American coalition all across the Eurasian plain, uh, and they have built it. They've got China, they've got Russia, they've got Iran. North Korea. They're even looping in now NATO members like Turkey into their fold. And so we have a big problem here because Iran is operating with the notion that it has great power support, notably from China, but from Russia as well. And they're correct. Mm. Condoleezza Rice called them the new axis of evil, the the Iran, Russia and China threat. I avoid that term given right, the implications, but she's not wrong. They are certainly an access that's coming for us. Brandon, it is so nice to have you on. Thank you very much for your time. In our final minute, I'd like to ask you, yep. you know, the 2024 election is just less than 365 days away. <laughs> what does this situation mean? Should American voters be paying a lot of attention to this foreign crisis yep. in addition to our own domestic issues? 
Yes. Well, they're all connected at this point. The whole country started to really go down uh, when Joe Biden was sworn in. And so I can't stress enough, whoever is the Republican nominee, probably Trump could be DeSantis, but most likely Trump, whoever it is of those two men. We need to support them because Joe Biden is the single worst president of the modern era. And if he gets another term or his party gets another term, then all these crises become permanent and everything gets worse. Brandon, thank you so much for coming on. Please, everyone, check out Brandon's books on Iran, China and America. And in the next hour, I will be interviewing Carol Swain on her allegations that Claudine Gay plagiarized her work. Rest you merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save poor souls from Satan's power which had long gone astray. Hello everyone and welcome to the third hour of the Dennis Prager Show. I'm Julie Hartman, best known as Julie from Dennis and Julie. That's my show with Dennis Prager, which premieres every Monday right here on the Salem News Channel. I'm also the host of my own three times weekly show, Timeless, with Julie Hartman, which is every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday here on the Salem News Channel. I called it Timeless because I believe that conservative values are timeless. 5,000 years of human history has produced some conclusions about the way that we ought to live. And so I endeavor to explore those things in my show. I hope that you will check both of those out, Dennis and Julie, and Timeless with Julie Hartman. I am so delighted to be joined by Carol Swain this hour. Dr. Swain is a big hero of mine. She was instrumental in my uh, transformation from radical leftist to conservative. I encountered her work when I found PragerU. So I'm delighted to be talking with her for that reason. And also, Dr. Swain wrote a editorial in yesterday's Wall Street Journal called Claudine Gay and My Scholarship, in which Dr. Swain stated that Miss Gay, the president of my alma mater, Harvard, plagiarized from her 1993 book and also her 1997 article. These are two pieces of work by Dr. Swain, which, again, she alleges the president of Harvard plagiarized from. Born into abject poverty in rural Virginia, Dr. Swain earned five degrees and obtained early tenure at Princeton, a full professorship at Vanderbilt where she was a professor of political science and a professor of law. In addition to these into excuse me, in addition to three presidential appointments, Dr. Swain is a former distinguished senior fellow for constitutional studies with the Texas Public Policy Foundation, having also served on the Tennessee Advisory Committee to the US Civil Rights Commission, the National Endowment for the Humanities, and the 1776 Commission. She, her work has been cited three times by the U.S. Supreme Court, and she has authored or edited 11 published books and numerous opinion pieces for major national publications. She's the founder and CEO of Carol Swain Enterprises, and she's also a mother, grandmother, and get ready for this, a great grandmother, too. Dr. Swain, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me on. It was so fascinating to read 
your editorial in yesterday's Wall Street Journal again, where you stated that the president of Harvard plagiarized two pieces of your work, a 1993 book and a 1997 article, and you outlined very well the damage that this has done to you. Of course, when anybody quotes from someone else and doesn't cite it, that is enough of damage because it's a form of theft. You're stealing their intellectual property. But also you talked about how your prestige as a scholar really depends on how often your work is cited and also that you were, you know, seminary in in this work, uh, seminal, excuse me, in this work and how when Dr. Gay didn't cite you, she was discounting all of the work that you did uh, in this realm of study. When did you, Dr. Swain, find out that the president of Harvard had plagiarized two pieces of your work? It was a, a Sunday a week ago that oh, wow. in the evening, people started calling me and I received an email to go look at Chris Rufo's uh Twitter page. And so I did, and I saw that he had found two uh, two instances where Claudine Gay had borrowed from my, well, I mean, stolen parts of my work and not uh, cited it. That, um, at the time, I thought, well, maybe it was accidental. I wanted to look at her published works, works because I had not followed her career. Monday, I read through and skimmed through several of her articles, and that's when I became very concerned. I was not so concerned about the passages because the passages that she did not uh, put quotation marks around or attribute to me, that, 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 those were, it was just laziness because those are not like major ideas. It was not the major thesis. It was just parts of um, my work that I guess she felt it fit it, it fit perfectly into whatever she was writing at that time. But how she has harmed me is that her work is derivative of mine. And my book, Black Faces, Black Interests, was a path-breaking work. That was the book that earned me tenure at Princeton, early tenure. It received three national prizes, including the highest prize a political scientist can win, it was selected by Library Choice magazine as one of the four outstanding books of 1994, and it did receive uh, three Supreme Court sites, and it was cited in many lower court uh, uh, decisions. And it was considered the seminal work on minority representation, minority congressional representation, and it was cited in voting rights cases. My contention is that when I read her work, and I'm reading her dissertation now, is that she does not properly acknowledge that she is building on my work. Uh, and as a scholar, what you're supposed to do, if, if you are working in an area where someone has already uh, established, you, uh, if you're challenging that work, you outline that work, you challenge it, or you affirm it, or you expand it, but she will have a citation in her bibliography without really saying that she's building on my work. And then in a few places where she might in her dissertation refer to my work, it is like, you know, it's just to discount it or distort it. She doesn't really engage it in a way that you would expect for someone who's clearly 
building on someone else's work and using their ideas. And anyone who would read Black Faces, Black Interests and read her uh, dissertation and the research can clearly see what she's trying to do. And I think there was a greater harm because of the fact that in the profession, your stature is dependent on how many citations you get. If someone is working in your area and they are ignoring your work and not citing it where they should be citing it, that's a problem. Hmm. Yes, you write here in the Wall Street Journal, when scholars aren't cited adequately or their work is ignored, it harms them because academic stature is determined by how often other researchers cite your work. And you go on to say, Miss Gay had no problem writing on the coattails of people whose work she used without proper attribution. Many of those whose work she pilfered aren't as incensed as I am. They are elites who have benefited from a system that protects its own. So you say that you are not the only one who was, uh, whose work was plagiarized by the president of Harvard. Who are those other individuals who you say she took from? Well, uh, one of the most prominent ones would be Lawrence Bobo uh, and Frank Gillian. Lawrence Bobo is a professor at Harvard. He's been there for a long time. Uh, he said that it was fine with him. He didn't have a problem with it. Her dissertation advisor, Gary King, there are sections of her dissertation that comes from his work, he said was okay. And most of the scholars have said uh, <laughs> that it's okay, including a scholar where I've read that a large section of her dissertation came from an article that he wrote. Uh, that, but the professor that said it was okay also said that... Um, that Harvard not holding her accountable is problematic because he tries to teach his students about plagiarism. Part of my contention and why I can't let this go is that it will have a downstream harm effect on higher education beyond Harvard. And I think that people should look very closely at what Harvard is doing. They are elevating DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion above uh, even protecting their own brand. And so clearly, uh, Dr. Claudine Gay, some people are not sure she even earned her doctorate, mm. but Claudine Gay clearly has violated uh, the professional norms when it comes to citing other people's work. And she has engaged in what is clear plagiarism. In fact, Harvard is having her go back and fix uh, citations in two of her papers but they have not uh, ordered her to fix her dissertation. Quite a bit of the, the um, plagiarism occurred in the dissertation. If that is allowed to stand, it will affect other colleges and universities, and it will trickle down to K-12. through And that's one of the reasons why I'm pursuing it. I also believe it harms um, racial and ethnic minorities, but just regular people who have to work hard, who try to meet the standards, it harms them when you lower the standards for people who belong to a certain pedigree. Yes. And, and part of my we, contention by Dr. That's, pardon me. That's what Yay. we'll be talking about in the next segment. We'll continue with Dr. Swain okay. in just a few moments. Julie Hartman here, guest hosting for Dennis Prager, who's at AmFest in Phoenix, Arizona. I'm delighted to be talking with Dr. Carol Swain, a prolific 
author and educator who wrote an op-ed in yesterday's Wall Street Journal stating that the president of Harvard plagiarized her work. Dr. Swain, I have to laugh at one of my mistakes. I said that you had seminary work when I meant to say your seminal work. But you know what? You are such a holy woman. It was what they would call a Freudian slip, saying your your seminal work. It's all right. (laughs) I need to stay. Some of us need to stay away from seminaries because they have become woke. Oh, boy. Boy, you you are... uh, you are so right about that. I may talk about that in the final few segments of my, my hosting this show. But in the last segment, you were talking about the immense harm that Claudine Gay's alleged plagiarism has done to you. I'd like you to continue. I'm sorry to have cut you off. Well, I think we should move beyond the harm to me and focus on the harm to higher education in America. Because at one time, we considered Harvard a world-class university. I don't think many people would say that today. Harvard is clearly in decline. And if they continue to keep Claudine Gay on as their president, they will have made a decision that DEI is more important to them than protecting their brand. And it won't just affect higher education. It will also affect K through 12. You write about this DEI complex in your most recent book, The Adversity of Diversity, which I see for those who are watching is right over Dr. Swain's left shoulder. I I love that book. I want to know, do you think that Dr. Gay, let's say she didn't plagiarize your work or any other of the scholars' work who you mentioned, do you think that she was qualified enough to be the president of Harvard. I mean, you referenced this in your editorial in the Wall Street Journal. You said, quote, tenure at a top tier institution normally demands groundbreaking originality. Her work displays none. Do you think that she should be the president of Harvard? I don't think she should have been tenured by Stanford University. If she had not plagiarized her work, her work would have qualified her for tenure at some institution, but not the Ivy League. And that uh, is how I feel about that. But now that we know that it's documented that she didn't just plagiarize sections from my work, but also from other people's works, I think that it would be just disqualifying. If Harvard wants to keep her on their faculty, uh, like the University of Pennsylvania kept its former president on, That's their business. I don't have a problem if they choose to do that. They've already ordered her to make corrections in some of the papers. She has to go back and she has to put in citations. She has to uh, put in quotation marks. They have not ordered her to do that in her dissertation. At this level, referring to someone who is become or who is in the running to become the president of a selective college or university, Do you have any idea how common this is, that someone has plagiarized or or not given appropriate citations to someone else's work? In other words, do you think that Claudine Gay, as the president of Harvard, is the only leader of these elite universities who has done something like this? Probably not, and we wouldn't have found out if she hadn't given such disastrous testimony before Congress, because I think that when she could not unequivocally equivocally state 
that genocide against Jews, to advocate for genocide against Jews, that that would be something that would be, <laughs> that would, that if she couldn't say that Harvard would condemn that, that that would be something they wouldn't tolerate on that campus. That was, it required a straightforward answer. It didn't depend on the context, but she wasn't willing to say that. And then when she said it depends on the context of whether or not it moved to action, just immediately among people that have common sense, the question was, is she saying you actually have to kill someone before it becomes a violation of Harvard's rules? I totally agree with you that her testimony, as well as the Penn and MIT president's testimonies before Congress, were, were horrible. Intensely hypocritical that they would punish someone, as they do on Harvard's campuses, for misgendering people, but then they go, eh. The genocide of Jews depends on the context. I totally agree with you there. But putting October 7th and these university presidents' right. reactions to it aside for the moment and looking, really focusing in on this alleged plagiarism, plagiarism? what do you I think you, would be the appropriate punishment for Claudine Gay? Well, she should resign her position immediately, and she should resign because if she loves her alma mater, she would not want to continue to do great harm to it. And I contend that she's doing great harm to Harvard's already ta tarnished brand. And we know that there's been a 17% drop in uh, new applicants for early admissions. And we don't know whether or not that would carry on for regular admissions. And so the world is learning that a Harvard degree is not what it used to be. Harvard used to be a world-class university, but under the tutelage of Dr. Gre Dr. Um, Gay, and you know, it's hard to say Dr. Gay when the debate out there is that she plagiarized her dissertation, and the dissertation is what mm. gets you uh, your doctorate. You have to defend your dissertation. And so there's a lot of things out there that Harvard has not adequately addressed and it will probably be a while before the dust is finally settled. But we know that Harvard announced that they were standing behind her and she is carrying on her presidential duties as if nothing happened. And in the meantime, there's evidence that her DEI regime on campus has been very destructive. And it uh, seems to uh, violate in some cases what I would argue uh, that it violates the civil rights laws and the Equal Protection Clause, when it targets white Americans, when it targets males, when the DEI programs elevate some groups above others, that's mm. problematic. We'll be picking up on that more in the next segment. You know, it's interesting you say that it's dubious whether Dr. Gay deserves to be called Dr. Gay. I did notice Dr. Swain, who definitely deserves to be called Dr. Swain, that you referred to... Uh, Claudine Gay as Miss Gay in your Wall Street yeah, Journal op-ed. Was yeah, that intentional? It was because of the fact that there's so much controversy around her dissertation. And mm -hmm. you asked me if other uh, high-profile people have plagiarized. They have. And some of them have gotten away with it, and some people have been forced to resign. They've been fired. Mm -hmm. And if you were a journalist at, at some point, but again, it depends on whether... I guess you're a Democrat, a Republican, a conservative, a liberal, because in some cases it destroys a career. In other cases, yes. people just blink like nothing happened. 
More with Dr. Swain in a few moments. I'm Julie Hartman. Chestnuts roasting on an open fire Jack Frost nipping at your nose Yuletide carols being sung by a choir And folks dressed up Julie Hartman here with Dr. Carol Swain Dr. Swain is a former distinguished senior fellow for constitutional studies with the Texas Public Policy Foundation. She also served on the Tennessee Advisory Committee to the U.S. Civil Rights Commission, the National Endowment for the Humanities, and the 1776 Commission. Her work has been cited three times by the U.S. Supreme Court, but it was not cited by the president of Harvard, Claudine Gay. Dr. Swain wrote in yesterday's Wall Street Journal opinion section that Miss Gay plagiarized from Dr. Swain's 1993 book and 1997 article. Dr. Swain, we've been talking about this DEI complex, which has affected higher education, and as you said, not just higher education, but elementary schools and high schools all across the country. If there's one thing I've observed about this, and I'm, I'm very curious to hear your thoughts, is that DEI not only allows unqualified people to kind of get through the net and ascend to these ranks of being presidents of these, these elite universities, it, it not only allows unqualified people to do so, but it actually in a perverse way incentivizes boards of trustees to select unqualified people because an unqualified person knows that the only way that they got to their job is because this particular group of individuals bent the rules for them. Do you agree with my assessment? I would say that uh, DEI is dangerous because it's it's focus on equity, equal Mm. outcomes rather than equal opportunity. And when the Civil Rights Act of 1964 passed, its intent was to prohibit discrimination and to create opportunities for people who had been left outside the system. And there was outreach and there was an effort to bring people in and to integrate them into the environment. DEI does not care about integration. In fact, it would impose, it was a, it would oppose integration. It wants inclusion. And when it talks about diversity, they want to bring in people with group identity, strong group identities, and have them fit into the mix, but not as individuals, but as representatives of their group. And they openly advocate for lowered standards because they paint all racial and ethnic minorities and members of beneficiary groups as victims. And so that is what uh, DEI does and it uh, lowers the standards. You look at the Biden administration, their cabinet. Uh, President Biden has argued that he has the most diverse cabinet in American history. I mean, most Americans know that it's the most incompetent in American history. He has a vice president that no one has confidence in. If they did, uh, they would have already invoked the 25th Amendment against him. But this is where we are, and Claudine Gay is part of that. And it greatly offends me that Harvard University would even try 
or what to do what they're doing, and that's redefine pleasurism to make it okay. And so this moral relativism has reached the point that there is no right or wrong. And Harvard thinks it gets to say, and it's decided that pleasurism is okay if it is done by someone that comes through their system. And I can tell you that Claudine Gay has had a world-class education. She went to uh, Phillips Exeter Academy. She was an undergraduate at Stanford and uh, Princeton. And she has a Harvard degree. I mean, she's had a world-class education. We should not make excuses for people. We should hold them accountable. She needs to be held accountable. And she needs to do the right thing and that step down. Dr. Swain, I'm so sorry that this happened to you, but I thank you very much for it's your commentary. It's not about me. Mm. <laughs> it's so much bigger than me. It really isn't about me. It's about American education and about our standards. Well, thank you for speaking out against this and for being a warrior, for restoring uh, high standards in, in higher education. I just want to shout out Dr. Swain's recent book, The Adversity of Diversity, which deals with many of the themes that we've been discussing very well. And also Dr. Swain's five-minute videos at PragerU. Obviously, I'm guest hosting for Dennis Prager. He founded PragerU. And this is especially important to me because when I was a sophomore at Harvard, I considered myself to be a pretty staunch liberal until I encountered PragerU and Dr. Swain's work. So thank you so much for being here. God bless you. And I hope to thank talk with you. you soon. Thank you so much. Have a Merry Christmas. Or and whatever to you. holiday you celebrate. Oh, I celebrate <laughs> Christmas. You. Merry Christmas to you too. We'll be back. All right. Bye. We'll be back in just a few moments with more news. Dennis Prager here. Thanks for listening to the Daily Dennis Prager Podcast. To hear the entire three hours of my radio show, commercial-free, every single day, become a member of PragerTopia. You'll also get access to 15 years' worth of archives, as well as the daily show prep. Subscribe at PragerTopia.com. Turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525.